So our reading now is taken from uh, Romans. And we're going to look at Romans 8, 1 to 4, but I want to begin our reading at verse 24 of uh, chapter 7. So a short reading. And the Apostle Paul is uh, speaking about the, his experience as a Christian. Um, and he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we've had a a couple of weeks off from the Book of Romans, um, but we're back into it today. And uh, uh, as we've been going through Romans, we've been following uh, what Paul has been, uh, following Paul as he's been talking, taking us through what the gospel is and what it means for the Christian life. Uh, And the application of the gospel is far-reaching. The need of all men and women is for righteousness. That's the big issue that's raised at the beginning of the book of Romans. uh, That man needs righteousness, but it's a righteous... He doesn't have righteousness. He is unrighteous. He is ungodly. And... um, And that creates a predicament. But it's a predicament for which God provides a solution. God takes the initiative uh, in dealing with this lack of righteousness. And uh, and that solution is found, of course, in Jesus Christ. It's uh, Jesus comes as the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation is about him taking away the wrath of God... Uh, on, our, for, uh, on himself uh, on our behalf so he is a propitiatory sacrifice and God is propitiated uh, the sacrifice does something to God uh, he's the propitiatory sacrifice and, um, and it's through his of course uh, his sacrificial death and the shedding of his blood that uh, we can be forgiven of our sins and the wrath of God taken away. Um, And that's all covered in chapter 3 of the book of Romans. Now the way that that righteousness is received is by faith. Uh, We we don't work it up in ourselves. Uh, It doesn't... uh, We don't earn it. We don't sort of develop an aptitude for righteousness just because of that. But rather... Through faith, the righteousness of God 
is, is made over to us in Jesus Christ. And so we receive, in a sense, as Martin Luther used to put it, uh, an alien righteousness, a righteousness from Christ uh, that we receive. And uh, that covers our unrighteousness. Uh, it substitutes, and of course, our sin uh, is put on him. And uh, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, he becomes sin for us. So he then bears the, the liability for all our sins. And that's all received by faith. All of those benefits. As we receive Christ, the risen, reigning, ascended, uh, uh, spirit-given Christ. Uh, as we do that, he, he, uh, he gives us his righteousness. Um, and, uh, and so that faith uh, becomes part of us. It becomes part of our experience. Uh, we live in faith. And chapter 4 tells us what kind of faith it is. It's a living faith. It's not, it's not a dead faith. It's not just an intellectual faith. It's a, it's a living faith. A living faith like that of Abraham. Um, and then in chapter 5 we saw how uh, all the many benefits that come to us through that faith. Uh, for example, just peace with God. No longer hostility towards God. Uh, having that secure place of uh, standing in the state of grace. Uh, yesterday at Presbytery, uh, Peter, Do- Reverend Dr. Peter Naylor was preaching on Revelation chapter 6, was it? Uh, yeah, 6. And, uh, you know, one of the big questions there was how, who is going to be able to stand in the judgment of God? And that that word stand was... Uh, who, can, who can stand? And I was thinking back to chapter 5. You know, the blessings of our salvation through faith is that now we can stand in a state of grace. We can stand before God. All by grace. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? And uh, So that's chapter 5. Uh, and we become part of this... So the blessing is that we become part of this new humanity... In Christ that God is making as we have been transferred, if you like, from under the headship of Adam to this new humanity under the headship of Jesus Christ. And uh, we have Jesus Christ now as our king, as our ruler. And so as we get to chapter 6, the implication of that is that now as a new, pe- new people, the power of sin is broken we're no longer under sin, under the power of sin and how it drives us and rules us and has authority over us. That's what it's like to be a non-Christian. You're driven by your passions. You're just driven by your sinful desires. That's all broken in the life of the Christian. And, um, and so sin that used to have a hold on us now no longer has a hold on us. Christ has a hold on us. We're, we belong to him. And it's all through his death and resurrection uh, that when Christ died, we died. And when he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead as we put our faith in him. And that becomes real for us when we put our faith in him. And these are all the things that have, have happened to us as Christians. But when you come to chapter 7... Uh, we saw this uh, this other 
thing is true. That um, while we have died to our old master, we have died to our old master. There is a sense in which sin is not, not yet dead to us. And so we still sin, don't we? We still have this battle that is going on in the Christian life. Uh, with our own sin and, and, and the, the old uh, man, if you like, the old self, uh, still keeps rearing its ugly head. Um, it doesn't control us, it doesn't rule us, it doesn't determine our destiny, but it's still present. And so uh, the Apostle Paul tries, has to explain that to us. It's really important we get this, because some Christians get very discouraged, uh, because well, I'm a Christian now, how, how can I sin? And, and Satan speaks into our ears and says, you're a Christian, how could you do that? How could you think that? How could you say a thing like that? And, well, this is the Christian life. <laughs> this is the battle that we're in there. Um, so what's, and what Paul is going to do now, uh, having laid all that out for us and said, what, you know, what a wretched man that I am. Um, having laid all that out now, he's... He's not going to leave us in that state of um, perhaps disappointment that sin's still pre- still active in us. Um, but he wants now to bring us to an assurance of our salvation, um, and we do need our assurance, don't we? This is the great thing. We can. It's possible to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but not really be sure. It's one of the big issues that uh, many people face: is lack of assurance. And so Paul is very keen for us to, to give as much assurance as he can. Uh, a wonderful assurance. And this is what the whole of chapter 8 is all about. Assurance. Giving the believers assurance uh, that they're indeed saved. That everything that God has started in them, he will bring through to completion. Uh, and we'll get to all of that in due course. Um, So this evening, we're, we are, I think we're going to begin to be assured um, that we are truly free in Christ in these verses. And so, uh, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that every Christian is undergoing a renovation, uh, becoming a new man or a new woman, and it takes time. And it's a, a re- renovating work that the Holy Spirit is doing. So let's first of all uh, address this question of the fact that we are assured that there is no condemnation against us. The chapter uh, begins by drawing out a significant conclusion here because he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the therefore in that sentence, uh, therefores are always really important because you've always got to look to for the reason what, what it's there for. <laughs> Why is he saying that now? He's talking about what he's just... Ha- he's, just he's concluding... Uh, a concluding comment about what he, everything he's just been saying. Therefore, this is the implication of everything that he's been saying. And he doesn't just mean the implication of things he's saying at the end of chapter 7. But everything that he's been saying from chapter 3 all the way through... when. When this righteousness from God was introduced all the way through to the end of chapter 7, he is saying, as a result of all of this and all the blessings and all the work that God has done, Christ has done, uh, and is doing in you through faith, he says, therefore, concludes uh, with 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So a couple of quick things about uh, this conclusion. Firstly, it is for Christians. There is uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Many people read their Bibles uh, who are not Christians and they say, Oh great, no condemnation. We're all going to go to heaven. And he says, No, no, no. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. It's really important. You're in Christ. There's no other way to be free of that condemnation. You need to be in Christ. It's those who are united to Him by faith, those who are bonded to Him in that irreversible bond of unity. Brought, wrought by the Holy Spirit who brings people to life and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, that's who it's for. The second thing to say about it is, is Paul is, uh, uh, is quite emphatic about it. Um, uh, in English, it's the, the no there, there is no condemnation. It's, it's a little bit buried in English. You, you might not notice it. You might not emphasize it. But in the Greek, it's actually right at the front of the sentence. Um, it's, it's stronger than just a no. It's saying there is nothing, not a thing, not one single little bit of condemnation now uh, against any of you. For any sin that you've committed, no matter how big, no matter how small and insignificant, whoever you are, whatever background you're from, if you're a Christian, you're in Christ, there is not a single iota, jot, tittle of condemnation for you. None at all. The propitiatory sacrifice has been given. No condemnation any longer. So both of those things, that it's those in Christ and it's, there's no condemnation. What a wonderful thing for the human being to hear. That whatever you've done in your background, in your life, you can come to Jesus Christ and all of it can have the condemnation removed from it. And you can have a clear conscience before God. That's what matters. Whatever anybody else says, and people will always accuse you of me. God won't. He will not hold it against you. He will not bring his eternal judgments on you. And it's a wonderful thing for us to hear as Christians. There is no condemnation any longer. We lack righteousness, don't we, in ourselves? Um, But God is saying, what all that Christ has done for us means that you can be righteous. You are indeed righteous before me. And you are no longer under the judgment of God. You know, if we're following Paul in chapter 7, uh, and uh, you, you would have been following with me and. Um, you can remember that he, he says that all the things he wants to do now as a new person in Christ, he doesn't do because of indwelling sin uh, and the weakness of his flesh. And how discouraging that can become. Uh, it's in, perhaps discouraging for Paul until he grasps the fullness of the gospel. And it's true for us, isn't it? We can be, become discouraged. 
and we find that we still sin and we still fall and it can be such a, a burden at times. And Satan comes as the accuser uh, into our minds and into our hearts and he's constantly pointing the finger and, and saying, how can you be a Christian if you do that? And you may even have people in your, in your life, in your family, uh, family members or colleagues saying to you, how can you be a Christian if you do that and you say this? But amazingly, God says, not a single iota do I hold against you. It's all been dealt with. It's amazing, isn't it? Maybe you find that hard to believe. It's not how human beings act. It's so, in a sense, otherworldly, isn't it? People like to make a show of their graciousness in forgiving someone, but often will still hold a grudge. You know, you sometimes find that in churches. We, we struggle to forgive people. And we'll maybe smile and we'll say, yes, I forgive you. Uh, but in our heart of hearts, we'll still hold on to a little bit of a grudge against people. Not so with God. Not so with God. We say... I can forgive maybe these sins, but I, I, I really struggle to, to forgive these sins. But God says, I forgive them all. Every single one. Actually, I think there's a bit more here, uh, even than that. Because what we've been talking about here is a declaration of condemnation that would rightly come uh, if we were under the law and there would be this great pronouncement of guilty. And what we are saying is that pronouncement is no, of the great judge of heaven is no longer over us. We are no longer under law, but under grace. This is what it means. That pronouncement has been removed. But a judge, of course, when making a judgment, does more than simply make a judgment, doesn't he? He, he, not only does he pronounce the sinner guilty, but as part of that condemnation, the sinner is also consigned to a punishment. A punishment that he is due. And I need to ask you this evening, what is the punishment... Uh, what, what has mankind, uh, mankind under Adam been consigned to uh, under, because of his sin? What is the curse that he's been put under? What is, of course, the power of sin that leads to death? The judgment, the consignment, the, uh, the sentence that's been passed is death. And that's what Paul has been saying back in chapter 1. That death is, comes as a result of sin. That wrath comes. The fruit of sin is death. The wages of sin is, is death. Not just the physical death in our bodies in time. But the eternal death of separation from God. And fel- loss of fellowship with God. You never... You're never separate from God. Even hell, God is present. There's nothing he's created that can be separated from him. Everything's sustained by him. But the blessing of God, even the common grace blessings are gone. Everything's gone. 
in that eternal death. But here's the glory of the, that phrase, there is no condemnation for the Christian. You are no longer consigned over to the power of sin that will lead to your, your death, your eternal death. Yes, your body may die. Indeed, it probably will. Near 100% certainty. Unless Jesus comes back before that. But the eternal death, the sentence of eternal death is gone. And that's why now he, uh, the Apostle Paul, moves on to speak about the wonderful, con- wonderful consequent liberty that has been brought about by the Spirit in verse 2. And so let's talk about the freedom of the Spirit. And Paul uh, puts this new spirit-wrought freedom in terms of, of laws. It's quite uh, maybe surprises that he does that. But he talks about it in terms of laws. Um, he's spoken about the law quite a lot. But we must be careful. It doesn't always mean uh, the Ten Commandments. It doesn't always mean the Mosaic Law. Um, sometimes he is doing that. Uh, but in this case, when he speaks about law in these verses... Uh, the law of the spirit of life, uh, of the law of sin and death in verse 2. Um, it's more like a description of a principle that's at work um, that one can observe going on. Um, and it's rather like a scientist that observes that, you know how a scientist works. I, I used to be a scientist before as a, an engineer, before as a minister. And uh, a scientist works by observing things and working out certain patterns of behavior. And those patterns of behavior are called laws. I think Joshua needs to sit down. (laughs) Come on, Joshua. Be a good boy. So think about the laws of um, gravity, for example. Um, how did you? How, did, how was the law of gravity discovered? Remember, remember Newton's uh, apocryphal apple that fell on his head. Don't know if that actually happened, but uh, well, he observed something about how things fall in the same direction, and uh, that stimulated a, a, an in- investigation into how does gravity work, and he worked out the law of gravity. Um, and it's one of the puzzles of, of gravity that uh, you can have two different one light thing, one heavy thing and uh, they both fall at the same rate because gravity works on both the same way there's a pattern there. there's a way of things happening that's a law which is observed and I think in verse 2 Paul is using law in that sense of a pattern or a, uh, an apparent law uh, a law of sin and death and a law of the spirit. Now the law of sin and death is I sinned, but not only that, I seem to be enslaved to sin. That's, that's human beings, they're, they're slave to sin, but in such a way that, you know, the thing, thing about slavery of sin is uh, people who are enslaved to sin love their sin, they love their slavery. It's one of the perversions of, of our condition is that we love our sins. We're driven by our passions and our desires. 
So you look at anyone who, who lives as though God doesn't exist or doesn't matter, and that's how they live. They live driven by their passions. There's that law that's at work in their life. Um, and it may even be seen as a virtuous law. You know, follow your heart. Do your own thing. Uh, find satisfaction as you pursue your dreams. All this kind of thing. But now he says, for you, Christian, as a result of no longer being condemned, there's, there's now a new law, a new principle at work in you, brought about by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. A new phenomenon is at work in you. This is what you see when people become Christians. Uh, they change. They, they seem to be driven by different, different principles. And, uh, and we saw something of this last time in chapter 7, that there are new desires to do what God's law says, and there, there's a new mind. The Christian has a new mind. And there's a changed inner person, if you like, that we spoke of before. And this inner person has, uh, is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a new pattern, if you like, a new law seems to begin to be observable in the Christian. And this is what the, the Apostle Paul calls the law of the spirit of life. So this is what happens when somebody is a new Christian. The life-giving spirit brings about these internal changes such that the new Christian begins to live differently. And a, and a clear evidence of that newness of life and that you've been freed from the condemnation of your sin, of your sin is that you live this new life. Does that mean that Christian lives a perfect life? No, it doesn't. Uh, there is still indwelling sin. But you have died to... You, so the truth is you've died to sin... So you're not under its authority, but sin is not yet dead in you, not completely. But the seed is there of new, this new life. And this will come to fruition through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens to the Christian. Uh, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, the power of the Holy Spirit changes you and transforms you. And so I just ask you this evening, does, does this describe you as a Christian? Is this what's happening to you? Are you experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life who is changing you? We mustn't assume that just because we come to church that this is happening. Uh, we're not just churchgoers here. We're, we want people to be Christians. To have that life-changing work of the Holy Spirit uh, occur within us. Thirdly, what's, what has the Spirit done then? Let's uh, think about verses, uh, verses 3 and 4. What has the Spirit done? And Paul explains how it is that the Holy Spirit can do this work of change in the first place. And incidentally, this is something that's actually impossible for law to do, for bare law, the law of God, Ten Commandments. Uh, you can't just give somebody the Ten Commandments and expect that their life will change. It's a fundamental problem with our condition. Um, and that's a drum I think we've been banging on for a long time. You can't just change people by giving them moral precepts. 
and moral principles. That's what the world thinks. It thinks if it can change the laws and it can change the culture and it can, it can you know, change people's behavior. And perhaps to a certain extent it does, but it can never save a person. It can never change anyone, fundamentally. And Paul says that here, even the law of God cannot make the changes that are necessary. Um, It's not that the law is flawed, because the law is good. That's what Paul has said in 7 verse 12. But the reason that the law can't change anybody is because of the weakness of the flesh. Uh, This is the the view of human beings the world does not share. the, The problem of the flesh. That people are a sea of raging passions, aren't they? They're a sea of passions which are, uh, as it were, out of control. And always tending towards sinful desires. And the law itself, by itself, cannot do anything to change that. So what does fix us as Christians? Well, it begins with Jesus coming into the world. Verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. That baby Jesus in the manger is... The Son of God coming in the flesh. When it says likeness of sinful flesh, he has to say likeness because his flesh is not sinful. Uh, He comes like us in every way in the flesh and yet without sin. So his flesh is sinless. Which shows you that our nature is not uh, by default sinful. Because we see Jesus who is sinless. We become sinful. So Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he comes for sin. He came to do something about our sin. And not just to remove the declaration of guilty that stands over every human being. But also to deal with the problem of indwelling sin that is continuing in us. In other words, whereas before we were consigned to sin and condemned to a life of sin that only leads ultimately to death, sin itself now is condemned in the believer through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the sin that is in your body just now, you still sin, but that sin is condemned. I said to you, sin is not yet... You've died to sin, but sin is not yet dead. But that sin is condemned and is awaiting that final sentence. And because that sin is condemned, that it itself is under judgment, it is now emasculated and without authority. Now the Holy Spirit is at work in the one who has put his or her faith in Christ. And now they have this new life. And this is what he's getting at now in verse 4. 
in order that. So all of that is so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now at work in us, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in us. Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us. Now the Holy Spirit is working the righteous requirement of the law in us. And this is what I've been saying for the last couple of times. What is happening in us as a result of our... What is happening to us as a result of our experience of grace? There is new faith in Christ and... There is a new love for the law. This is the the work of the Holy Spirit. Giving us a new love for the law. A new mind. A new heart. And now we walk according to the Holy Spirit. So now you see because because of the cross. Because of the empty tomb. Because. The Holy Spirit is now actively at work in the believer to bring about that progressive transformation. It's glorious, isn't it? How full is our salvation? It's not just, I I say this many times, but it's not just that Jesus came to buy us a load of tickets for heaven. And now he's just handing them out and we kind of put them in our back pocket and we just live as, as we did before. No, Jesus has come taken away all the shackles of our sin. And now the Holy Spirit comes and begins to renovate us in newness of life. And that's a great story. The whole thing. Wonderful story. The story of salvation where the true believer in Christ may walk in life with the joy of knowing that there is no condemnation, that he or she has a clear conscience, that his or her relationship with God is restored, Here she's being changed. What a wonderful gospel. Did you notice something wonderful in these three verses? Verse 1, we Christians are in Christ. Verse 2, is the Holy Spirit is at work in us. In verse 3, God sent his Son. And God is Paul's way of speaking about the Father. So we have the the Son, the Spirit, and the Father at work in all our salvation. The whole Trinity is involved in your salvation day by day. This is the blessing of coming through the mediator, Jesus Christ, that we enter into fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is at work in us to change us and to fulfill in us uh, the law's requirements. It's a great salvation we have. And we praise God for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful few verses. There is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ. We rejoice that the penalty is removed, but also that the power is broken and that the Holy Spirit is present in us to change us and make us more Christ-like. We pray you'd help us to believe all that with with all our hearts and so live 
with great joy, seeking your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.